Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, the ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. I'm actually just here to welcome you on behalf of Calvary. There's, there's an elaborate kind of uh, passive-aggressive ruse to have Micah Greenstein be our rabbi in residence here, and so we keep pushing him into more and more tasks to get him down here. I know he has, doesn't have time to be here tonight. There's a lot on his plate, but here he is. So he's going to actually be guiding this conversation with these two other remarkable people here as we, as we move into, into our Lenten preaching series. Some, a lot of you will know this is the hundredth year of Calvary's Lenten preaching series. If you've seen the lineup, we're just excited to have these conversations. The way this is going to work is uh, Mike is going to do a fuller introduction of Jen Bailey and Omid Safi in a moment, and he's going to uh, actually moderate this. Most of all, know that you're welcome in this place. We're just honored. This is a nasty night out in Memphis, and all of you came through the rainstorm, right, because you wanted to be here and hear this remarkable conversation. So I'm going to turn it over to Micah and Jen and Omid, and thank you all three for being here. Salam, y'all. Shalom, y'all. Peace. Uh, I, I first want to say this 100th anniversary of a series is absolutely remarkable. It's such a great honor to be in this church. Let's hear it for Calvary Episcopal Church. So I, I am Micah Greenstein. I've been looking forward to this, not because of the joke of a Muslim a Christian and a Jew walk into a waffle shop. Um, this evening is called Calvary After Dark, but it may as well be entitled Calvary After the Flood in Memphis. The heavens just open up tonight, and yet this hall is filled with people. I'm First, going to introduce the Reverend Jen Bailey, ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Yes, that is what AME stands for. Um, is a national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. Um, she is the founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network. And she wrote one sentence that sounds like the other panelist beside her. She wrote that she believes love is the animating force that will make the difference between a future of uncertainty and division and one of deep belonging. And the resident Muslim at Calvary Episcopal Church, or in Memphis, um, is the Dr. Omid Safi, the professor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Duke University. He is a teacher in the Islamic tradition of radical love with extensive work uh, written on the foundational sources of Islam and Sufism. He is a, a leading Muslim public intellectual um, investigating the intersection of spirituality and social justice. But uh, more importantly, he knows, as Jen does too, how to connect how to translate the ideas of faith uh, into the lives we live. I want to begin by asking both of you, what is radical love? And what is spiritual healing? Oh, Good question. Good question. Thank you, first of all. 
friend. And thank you, folks, for, for being here. We have a very simple understanding that takes just a few lifetimes to live into, which is the notion that love is not a feeling. Uh, love is not an emotion. And as I sometimes like to say to especially my students, love is not an emoji. Uh, love is not something you text somebody. Uh, for us, love really is uh, the very essence of God. And what creation is, is the outpouring of this overwhelming radical love uh, it's love that brings us here. It's love that sustains us here. And if we can just get over our damn selves for two nanoseconds, then we can merge back into this cosmic current of love and ride it to go back to the home that we've never really left. So I think that, for me, is, is radical love. And it's the translation of this term, eshq in the Islamic tradition, which isn't liking somebody or just loving somebody. It's love when it burns you to your core. It's fire. It's alchemical. It's transformative. Jen, how is your love belief any different than what he just said? I don't know that it is. <laughs> um, you know, whenever the term radical is thrown around, I always think about the root of it, which is to be rooted, right? right. And so when I think about radical love in the same way I often think about radical hope. I think mm. about a love that is grounded in something and helps us reach back and connect to the generations before us and those yet to come. And mm. so that cosmic sense of love is that which transcends time, transcends mystery and all we might understand and speaks to, in, you know, in the language of my tradition, an, an essence of who God is, right? That God transcends time, that God is ever-present, and that love as the very source of mm. our connection to one another, the very source of what it means to not just be human, but one in creation, is part of a process that is yet unfolding and that we will not see the end of in our lifetime. So that was a softball because you're scholars in love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move to something uh, a little more challenging and take as much time as you want on this. Um, it hit me driving to this church in the heart of the city. <clears throat> We're warm. It's fine. I was approached by someone who has very little, who probably goes to the mission here. I knew Tyree Nichols. Many of us did. Um, is the future of faith challenged not just by the ills of society, but I want to ask you directly by man's ongoing inhumanity to man or humanity's inhumanity to each other, whether it be violence, genocide, all the isms of the 20th century. Is the future of faith, that's the theme of this series, is it challenged as you see it as a Muslim and Christian by the ongoing inhumanity of the world? We're talking man-made, not earthquakes. We'll get to earthquakes later. Mm. When I hear that term inhumanity, I often think about how closely it is tied to what I would say is indifference. Mm. So indifference to the suffering of others, indifference to um, the ways in which we are denying through 
an obsession with separation, whether consciously or not, the ways in which we are connected to one another, right? And so part of our inhumanity to one another, I believe, is grounded in a sense of our own sense of separation from one another and lack of connection. And so to me, indifference is almost more dangerous <laughs> than um, what one might typically frame as inhumanity or violence, right? Because indifference is what prevents us from intervening in those moments. I mean, that's Heschel for you right there, right? Indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. And there's something about what Heschel, for me, the great Jewish Sufi, uh, if there ever was one, he talks about we have to pray against callousness. That's the thing that we have to shatter in our own hearts. And maybe in a bygone era, people would have had idols of wood and stone. We're just a little more clever in hiding that idolatrous behavior as this is not really my problem. These are not really my people. Maybe they just make bad choices in life. Uh, instead of that recognition that, to use, borrow a term from Martin, we're all caught up in a network of inescapable mutuality. And if what it is to be human is to be relational, to fellow human beings, to God, to the sacred realms, to ancestors, to my as of yet unborn children, and to the natural realm, then when you see a fellow human being, and worse, a fellow human community suffer, and if we are not affected by it, then it means at some genuine level, either a part of our heart is dead and is in need of revival, or it means that we have cut ourselves off from the matrix of life. Wow, you both really pushed my buttons um, on both of your responses in that um, it was Wiesel who said uh, the opposite of hate is not love but indifference to hate, mm -hmm. that indifference is the enemy and that it wasn't Hitler, for instance, who killed all the people in the days of the Shoah. It was the people who followed him who were indifferent to it. And I can't believe you brought up Heschel who talks about um, divine pathos mm -hmm. and flips the spotlight from the Academy Award looking up and says, imagine what the creator is feeling if compassion is love mixed with a little pain, yeah. are we feeling that pain and how do we respond? Your thoughts on moving away from indifference or humanities, inhumanity, to um, where do natural disasters like the horrific earthquake in Turkey and Syria fit into Christian theology and Muslim theology? And I realized there are different theologies. Yeah. Mm. But how do you make sense of that in your theology of a loving God? So as a general rule, Islamic theology doesn't really deal with what people would call theodicy. It's not a question that preoccupies us the way that it does our sister traditions. Having said that, um, there's places in which if we look into and we go deep into... Sorry to interrupt you. So it's God's will? What happened in Turkey and Syria? It's just bad luck. 50,000 um, people. God picked them. I'm asking. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm willing to say I don't know and I mourn and I don't understand and I will not pretend that I have a rational answer to that question. And life is not so much an article of faith that I choose to believe simply, but that I accept a certain measure of mystery because of the fact that I'm human and I operate in a very limited understanding. If I step outside the realm of theology, I think many of you who might have had the same partner for 10, 20 years, every now and then you look into the eyes of your partner and you're like, I don't know how in the name of God you could have thought that that was an acceptable thing to do. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And it's like, awkward laughter, awkward laughter. Right. <laughs> and, and if this is the person that you've been intimate with, and you're like, I don't know in the name of God how you could possibly do that. And if the closest human being in the world can still remain a mystery to you, how much more so for the Lord, the loving Lord of all the infinite universes? So I want to check myself in my grand philosophical attempt to come up with a rational explanation for how does loving God allow terrible things to happen? Is God impotent or could not God not help himself or did not care? You know, if, if people smarter than me haven't come up with a rational answer to it for 2,000 years, maybe I won't come up with it in this podcast either. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Here's what I would say. How do you make sense of it? I'm not asking any of us to play God or to give the answer, but how do you make sense of it So, as a religious person? Compassion and grief are where we start. And it's not compassion and grief and tears as a prelude to rational analysis, the most human thing that I have to offer my, and those are, those are my friends. Like some of the people in the audience here know, I go to Turkey every year. I've taken a thousand people to Turkey. I know you met your wife there. I mean, I did. I did. It's a sacred place. My spiritual tradition is grounded in Turkey. These are, these are my ancestors. So it's not a place that I look at with any sense of detachment. But here's what I would say after that experience of grief. And one of my worries is that in this modern world, we bypass grief. Mm. And then that becomes anger and it becomes trauma and becomes lots of other things. In the Quran, there's a chapter that is called the earthquake. Uh, when the earth is quaking, it's an apocalyptic passage. And the earth is throwing up whatever has been inside of it, right? And people ask it, what's the matter with it? It's a sign of the end of days. And the word that the Quran uses is the earth will reveal what God has revealed to it. Meaning what? The word that is used for reveal is the same word that the Quran uses for the divine revelation given to Moses, to Jesus, and to Muhammad. What if we were actually to look at the earth as a prophetic figure that is the direct recipient of divine revelation, right? Rumi says, if you want to know what the earth is and what your relationship to the earth is, 
Imagine the earth as the body of your prophet, the body of Moses, the body of Jesus, the body of Muhammad. So for the victims of the earthquake, compassion and grief. For me, as a person who makes a small effort to live in an ethically beautiful way, how are we living? What are we doing to this planet? How is it that the polar ice caps are melting and that's going to mean 100 million people in Bangladesh being underwater in a matter of a few years? That's an action of ethical consequence and it's not happening to a thing. It's not happening to a dead entity. It's happening to a living being that is the direct manifestation of God. Beautiful. Mm. Reverend Bailey. Yeah, Christians are obsessed with this question, right? <laughs> um, and so I hold this question in real tension, right? This notion that God is all-powerful, <laughs> next to the reality of being the direct descendants of slaves from Georgia and Florida and Mississippi, and people who very deeply believed in a tradition that was both handed down to them and that they subverted, right? And so when I think about this question of theodicy, I often think about it with a wink, <laughs> right? That Although this notion, and particularly of God being all-powerful, is what sustains my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother, right? This goes back to time, right? Mm -hmm. Is it that their understanding of God's all-powerfulness was not specific to the times in which they were living, but more of a cosmic time of where God was headed? <laughs> because otherwise, it just don't make any sense. And I mean that seriously, right? When I think about the fact that when my grandmother was 11 years old, growing up in Quincy, Florida, there was somebody that was lynched in her hometown, right? When I think about just the, the horrors that my family has experienced, both personally and generationally, horrors and trauma that I still carry literally in our DNA, they can, they can trace generational trauma in our DNA to worship an all-powerful God that was somehow on the side of those who oppressed and maligned my people just doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. But what it does open me up to is a space of deeper compassion for those who do suffer, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love, and particularly about the retentions that show up in African-American expressions of Christianity in the U.S. is that we never really lost our sense of collective grief and mourning, that there is intrinsic in our tradition this sense of, you know, there's a reason why funerals last six, seven hours in the black church, right, of a, that it's called a homegoing service, right? There's a movement that happens in the midst of death, in the midst of loss, that moves folks from a space of simply um, despair to one of collective release, that opens us up to a different sort of understanding of what is possible if we learn from that grief and from death. And so, you know, I hold that question with a wink. <laughs> I hold the question of an all-powerful God with a wink. A, a wink signifying that I don't know, right. and a wink signifying that I'll never know, and a wink signifying that, you know, if there is indeed an afterlife and I get to meet God face-to-face -face one day, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> And that my faith is big enough to hold those questions and that as radical as it may seem for some folks who claim to be a part of my tradition, right, 
that, you know, faith is not the absence of doubt in my mind, right? When I think about the meaning of faith, for me, it is trust in the absence of certainty. And, you know, there's a bit, there's a hymn in my tradition that, you know, it says, time is filled with swift transition, not on earth unmoved can stand, build your hopes on things eternal, hold to God's unchanging hand. And what does that mean, right? Hmm. That the same God that sustained my great-grandmother Helen is the same God that might be sustaining me now, that might sustain my kids into the future. My kids who I'm raising Jewish, by the way. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting to think about that connection, again, um, to generations and to understand ourselves as just a blip in our larger human story that is still unfolding. I could continue listening to both of you uh, all night. Um, beautiful. Since this is an interreligious dialogue, uh, all religions, I think it's fair to say, acknowledge each other's core issues. We were talking before in the green room of how certain words and concepts and ideas and ideals resonate in all three faith traditions represented tonight. Sin, we may define it differently. Uh, humility, however we define it. For our listeners' benefit and for everyone in this great hall, as you see it, I know you are not the Pope of your faiths. Uh, we don't have that. But what is the most important theological subject for the way of Allah and the way of Christ? Acknowledging that all the subjects matter. We could talk about grace through a Jewish lens as chain, or grace through a Christian lens, or grace through a Muslim lens. But what's the, the fundamental most important subject, as you see it, in your faith? And, and I'm sorry, I, I mean, we could say Christianity's belief in Christ, Islam is surrender, but I, I, we have you, not yeah, the book. Yeah, I, I mean, this is interesting, right? Because my answer probably would have been different five hours ago. Um, but what's coming to me is the question of salvation. What is it that we're being saved from? What are we being saved towards, right? There's this notion that's fundamental in Christianity that we ought to be saved from something, right? And for me, that's a question to wrestle with, right? What, what does it mean to be saved if you must be saved? And I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure in this season. You're, you're catching me at a, a moment of, of trust in the absence of certainty. And so... Yeah, what, what does it mean to be saved? What are we aspiring to be saved from? What are we being saved maybe towards rather than from? But that feels like a fundamental, again, and say my Christians can be obsessed with the odyssey, right? <laughs> we often get obsessed with the conditions of salvation. I mean, that's why we got splits all over the place, right? The terms at which we um, decide and the very specific ways <laughs> in which we believe we must be saved. But what if the answer is much simpler than that? Mm-hmm. What if salvation is a turning towards love in the cosmic sense? And again, not from, but toward. I mean, I think about that language of conversion meaning a turning, right? A turning towards. So that's the concept that I think is most active for me in my imagination right now. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Safi. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, in, in all of our traditions, we've got these wonderful tradition of stories and storytelling. And 
we also talk about sometimes not just the telling of stories, but the catching of stories. Mm. So it's not just about having someone who's got the great repertoire of stories, but how do we become a people who know how to hear them and how to put them in practice in terms of our own life? And there's a wonderful story about the life of the prophet uh, in which he's sitting around with a circle of his closest disciples. And there's this guy that shows up wearing white from head to toe. And if you know something about Arab desert background, you don't get to walk around with a completely white outfit because it's always sandy. Um, and so the dude has just zoomed down here somehow. And he comes up to Muhammad and he sits next to him knee to knee. It's a great assumption of intimacy. And feel free to hear this in the Monty Python voice. <laughs> and, and he goes, um, what is Islam? And the prophet says, well, it's to declare the faith in the oneness of God and to pray and to give charity to those in need and to fast and to go on the pilgrimage. And the white-wearing dude goes, you've answered correctly. And the disciples are like, you know, in case you don't know, you're new to these parts. He is Muhammad, God's chosen one. And you just told him you've answered correctly. And then he goes, what is faith? And Muhammad says, it's to have faith in God and the angels and the scriptures and the day of judgment to come. You've answered correctly. And then he asks the third, and all these stories happen in threes, the third and the final question, and that's what's the real virtue, what's the highest calling? Um, and he says, what is it to make love and beauty real? Ihsan, what is it to make love real? How do you make love real? And Muhammad says, it's to adore God as if you see God. And if you don't, and there's the turn, to remember that God is nevertheless glancing upon you. Right? However you would conduct yourself in that moment of being held by God, that's how you would be. And the mystics of my tradition love that story because what we think of as religion that's just the basement level. That's the foundation upon which you build your spiritual life. Higher than that would be faith. And Rumi says faith is one, though religions vary. But then there's something even higher than faith, and that's love and beauty. We don't oftentimes, enough times, think about beauty as a religious virtue. A lot of us can think of people who say all the right prayers and pay the right alms and maybe have memorized sufficient passages of scripture, maybe even have gone on pilgrimage to all the right places, but they're assholes. It's a Hebrew term. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I believe the Hebrew and Arabic original is assholes, oh, you yeah. know. Same. You got to have same. some phlegm in there Kala. Kala. if you want it to be a good Arabic Hebrew word, you, you know. <laughs> Um, and in this tradition, there is really that sense that unless you've made love real, unless you've made beauty real, and you measure that not by...
by the way that you treat your favorite peeps and not by the way that you treat the powerful, but rather the least of these, right? The poor, the widow, the orphan, the needy, the immigrants, the refugees. So I think it's that calling, perpetual calling towards love and beauty, not in a mushy, romantic, sexual sense, which if you can get it and it's good and it's reciprocal, mazel tov. <laughs> Mabruk. Allah is smiling upon you, right? But that's one tiny, tiny sliver and an understanding of love, which restricts it, unless your partner is a hell of a lot more open-minded than my partner is, to one person mm. out of eight billion. That's a dumbass model of love. That's an exclusive model of love that leaves out 7.99 billion billion people on the planet. So what do we want? We want a kind of model of love that is radical, that is overflowing, that encompasses people to whom you have no direct relationship with. And you act justly because you love, not because you feel sorry. So I haven't answered these questions I've prepared, uh, but I've thought about those answers and... I've done intel on both of you. I'm the moderator. That's why <laughs> you call I'm, the FBI. That's why I'm asking the questions and not and not answering them. But I, I just want to ask because my intel on you, both of your not just passions but convictions for social justice, of faith in action, mm-hmm. of everything related to God or faith or love in action. In our shared scripture, there's that phrase, which is tikkun olam, which is being God's helping hands in the world to make it. I'm trying to avoid trite phrases. Even social justice doesn't do it justice, pun intended. So I've loved this hour on love, but it seems like you have both devoted your lives to this concept, whether it's organizing, whether it's your social justice work and writings. Can you comment on that, on this notion of repairing the world and being God's helping hands in that venture? We're in a church that isn't uh, removed uh, from the lepers. It's where Jesus or Moses or any prophet would be. Hmm. And it seems where you have both centered your lives and your work what does that mean to you? And why are you doing what you're doing, uh, Reverend Bailey, um, in Nashville? Why did you start Faith Matters? Why are you doing all this organizing? Where, where does that come from? Yeah. So our work at Faith Matters Network is really about how we accompany spiritually grounded leaders on their journeys to heal themselves and their communities. So I like to say we're working with the organizers who are on the front lines. We're supporting and amplifying and trying to figure out how they sustain themselves as they do the hard work on the ground of repairing in a deep way. Mm-hmm. And that experience of founding FNM came out of my doing some direct organizing on the streets of Nashville with people who were food insecure during my time in divinity school. So doing food justice organizing in my early 20s and leaving with more questions than answers um, and seeing just how deeply depleted folks were in the work. 
That means that I'm like, I've been really shaken and thinking about this question <laughs> and in part because my commitment to creating communities of belonging where everyone has a seat at the table, I recognize is really grounded in my own sort of experience of core wounding as a child, experience of direct racism in my, when I was five years old and ostracized in my little West Central Illinois town and told that I was dirty because why else would my skin be brown, right? That those early experiences of pain and trauma shaped my, both a sense of compassion, but my desire for no one else to feel that way, regardless of where they came from or what they had access to in terms of resources. And now I find myself constantly in dialogue with myself and with other folks in my life to really hold a mirror to myself because now I'm in a position of deep privilege, right? I get to come and talk to you all (laughs) and I get to um, travel and I get to do work that I love and care about, but that is not as directly proximate to some of the pain as it was when I was in homeless campsites and like helping people fill out food stamp applications. And so what I'm recognized, I'm 35 now, so it's like, hopefully I got a lot more living to do. (laughs) But is that the perfect example that it's coming to mind is that when George Floyd was murdered in 2020, And I had so many friends who were in the streets and who were ready to wear their collars and be present. I was six months pregnant and and it was the middle of a pandemic. And I realized the best way for me to protect black life in that moment was to stay my butt at home physically. That didn't mean I didn't do my work redirecting resources and making sure (laughs) I were sending Uh, financial resources to organizers who were doing the work on the ground. But I think what I've recognized is that over time, my role has changed and will change and that we're not all called to fill the same role of activist or organizer at all time, right? That there are different things that we're called to at different seasons of our lives, but the core commitment, that commitment to building a world in which, again, for me, everyone has a sense of deepening belonging and purpose and dare I say what it feels like to be beloved of God and of others is at the core of all of that. Heschel, Malcolm X, MLK. Oh Oh God, I love me some Malcolm. I, you know, I've been that weird kid who always had roomy, and Thich Nhat Hanh and the Buddha and love poetry right next to Malcolm and anti-colonial thinkers and anti-racist activists. And I've had my whole life people tell me that these two don't go together, that you have to either be on the love side or on the justice side. And I refuse. I refuse to divorce myself, I I refuse to split my own heart because I see one water that fills up different oceans. There are these beautiful, powerful teachings, and I know you can find them in the Hebrew Bible. I know you can find them as statements of Christ. I read them through the mouth of the beloved, the, the prophet, where he is imagining this conversation in the day of judgment between God and humanity and God asking people, I was sick and you didn't come to visit me. 
and people saying, you are the Lord of the whole world. How can you be sick? And I said, if you had come to see the sick, you would have found me with them. Uh, I was hungry. Why didn't you feed me? If you'd come to the hungry, you would have found me with them. And the prophet talks a lot about, a lot about this question of the divine withness. And where is God to be found? Yes, all over. Yes, in a butterfly. Yes, in the giggle of a child. Yes, in a sunrise. Yes, in a note of music. And with the poor. And with the sick. And with the heartbroken. I know that there's direct versions of that in other traditions. That doesn't make it any less valid for me. It makes it more valid. So I think the question that I am sitting with is in the Quran, there's this beautiful line, in God commands you to love and justice. And I mean, you all know the Cornell West version of it. You know, when love comes out, we recognize it as justice, when love comes into public. And then in our tradition, we also always add that the same love that comes out also moves in and there we recognize it as tenderness. And that's one of the concerns that I have in having been somebody who's been marching and demonstrating and organizing for 35 years, which is that a lot of my colleagues, I like to call them comrades because it makes us sound really badass if I say comrades, they're angry people by now. They're fed up and frustrated and outraged at how fundamentally broken many of our social structures are. And I think there is a place for rage and for outrage, but I don't think it can have the final say. And so as I get older, and let's just be generous to say, if life were seasons, and if you could predict how many seasons your life is going to have, mine is no longer the spring season or the summer season. If I'm really lucky, it's the autumn season, but it might even be the winter season. Yeah, there's times and places that people look to me to have things to say about political crises. I really see my work as a work of deepening the love tradition. First of all, in my own tradition, because frankly, I think we need help. I think there's a lot of the love tradition, which is the heart of my tradition, which recently has not been as beautifully and fully expressed as I think it should. So however many days I have, that's what I want to do. I want to do the Quran through a lens of love, the prophet through a lens of love, the radical love tradition in our spirituality. And in my experience, when you speak with love and from love, then other people who may not share your tradition, they go, I, I feel you, brother. <laughs> I, I know that where you're coming from. Whereas if I start from the political side, I don't think I can get us to that mountaintop, to that vast meadow of beauty and justice by beginning where our greatest divides are. And it's not just a matter of being strategic about it, though not being 20 anymore. Thank you, I've had enough banging my head against the wall. <laughs> But it's a matter of the fact that love heals and love transforms and love alchemizes because love is divine. And I don't know anything else that is in the same way. Um, so that's the heart. We hope those listening to this podcast, uh, I know it's impossible to see, but are feeling the, not just the love, but the deep 
thought. I want to open it up now to our esteemed audience uh, to ask any of the panelists questions in our remaining time. Over here, please. You started with a comment about uh, that the opposite of love is indifference and uh, the worst is not evil, but those are indifferent to evil. What are practical suggestions you have to not being indifferent? I mean, I would imagine the fact that we're here, most people feel they're not indifferent. I feel I'm not indifferent, but I still just go to work and I live my life. So what does the opposite in action mean? What does the opposite of indifference mean in action to, to y'all? I think what came to mind for me was a, a willingness to grieve alongside those who grieve, right? And, and when I say that, what I mean is I certainly have over the past several years felt myself drifting into a place of compassion fatigue. It seems like every <laughs> every day, every hour, there's somebody else being killed. There is some other natural disaster or tragedy. And for my own psychological well-being, I think my brain is just sometimes will shut it off. But the invitation into taking moments of pause and into the practice of feeling again, even if it's setting aside five minutes to imagine, right, what it is for mothers in Syria and Turkey to be burying their children, what it is for a family like Tyree's family, right, when the national spotlight goes away to still be without a loved one. Um, because all of us have had an experience of loss in our lives, um, no matter who we are. And so I think that experience of loss can help inform the way that we open ourselves up and our heart up to the possibility of grief, the possibility of collective mourning, and that that in that act of mourning and that act of feeling in a world that would teach us not to feel in a society and a culture that is very anti-feeling, even as it is hyper individual feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so your question is making me think of like, what is the spiritual discipline there of then of collective grief and giving space for that in your life? Um, you know, one of the, realities that I've experienced in my own heart and in my own body is if I just look back 20 years, even after 9-11, it used to feel like there was crisis and a break and another crisis. And there, was, there were opportunities to rejuvenate. It doesn't feel like that anymore. Now it just feels like crisis on top of crisis, next to crisis, inside crisis. I think one of the things we're going to have to figure out, and I don't think this is a chapter of the Quran or the Torah that we just happened to not have read yet. I think this really calls for rootedness and groundedness, for looking out for sanctification and imagination is we're gonna to have to figure out how to rejuvenate, how to heal while in the very midst of crisis. Um, and that's a challenging discipline to know when is it that sitting and saying a prayer and meditating and being silent enough 
to actually hear your own heartbeat, which is like basic Islamic meditation technique, is actually not an escape from the traumas of the world, but it's making sure that I still have something to offer. And to develop the discipline to do that, individually and communally, I think that's um, at least one part of that really important question you're asking. Please, another question. This is, this is Rich. Here we are, right in the middle. Hello. All right, so you both spoke of this radical cosmic love. Is there a radical cosmic opposite opposing that? And what is that? And how would you explain that? I'll go first. Um, not surprisingly, there's a great Rumi poem. Um, there's a Rumi poem for everything. Um, Rumi talks about one night having had a dream in which love appears to him as this beautiful beloved. And he's just ravished by the beauty of this being. And so he starts talking to this love embodied. And he goes like, I've never seen anything more beautiful than you. And he goes, oh, you're love, aren't you? And love is like, yes. <laughs> and then he goes, I'm scared because I tried you before and I'm really afraid that I'm going to get hurt again. I'm afraid of something else. And love goes, there is nothing else. I'm all there is. And as the conversation goes on, He's like, I've never seen a more beautiful being than you. Are you human? And he's like, no, <laughs> not a human. He goes, are you, are you an angel? He's like, no, honey, I ain't no angel. <laughs> are you a demon? No, not a demon. And he goes, not a human, not an angel. That just leaves God. And then love goes, hush, you're right but say nothing. Um, and that notion that there is nothing other than love. Love doesn't have an opposite in the same way that light doesn't have an opposite. The opposite of light is not shadow. Shadow doesn't exist. Light is all there is. Love is all that fundamentally exists. But then there might be times in which the ego, selfishness, greed, me, 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 the Holy Trinity, me, myself, and I, standing in the way of that cosmic current of love. We're going to close. I, I have a closing, but I, I'd love one of you to offer one more question, perhaps, if you have one. If not, please, in the back. This um, radical love that you talk about, and uh, you know, walking along the side, the, the broken and the wounded, um, the hungry, the, the oppressed, that takes energy, and it takes something of you. Where do you go to, to refresh your soul? It's interesting, your question, I'm holding um, both that, yes, those relationships take energy, but they also, be, they're not unidirectional, and so far as they, they fill me up. But really where I go is my two-year-old. So I have a two-year-old, and he is a trip. I mean, he, he's not easy. Mad Max. Mad, ma Mad Max. Um, but there's something in accompanying the emergence of a human being. 
and recognizing like he came out fully formed with a personality and like he's just finding the words right to express himself and express his emotion. He is, you know, he's a lot. <laughs> he's a lot. My baby's a lot. Um and there's such joy in that. It is also exhausting. I like to call parenthood as I'm learning it to be a joyful pain in the ass, right? Like there's so much about it that is challenges everything I thought I knew about love. Um, and there's just something magical when he gets really excited about a snow cone, right? We had snow cones at the park yesterday and his eyes lit up and there was wonder there. Um, and how can you not be filled up? Um, delighting in the joys and the sorrows of a child, right? Because the other thing that I think Max is teaching me is that, you know, whether it's in a temper tantrum or when he's hurt, right, it helps me to feel again. <laughs> it helps me to recognize that. Um, and there's a way even in that sorrow and, you know, feeling pain along with him, that, mm. that fills me up because it helps remind me of my own humanity that I have become indifferent to. So... He's great. If you guys want to see pictures of him, I have lots of pictures uh, of him. He's, he's the best. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I have a two-year-old also, and uh, her name uh, in translation is Pure Light, the Sign of God. Um, and, and she is. She is all of that. And the, the joy and the sense of curiosity and mischief and wonder that she lives with, that lets me know that there has to be a God. If I'd never read a line of scripture, but all I had was just her eyes, that would, that would do. We, we were talking before about some of the questions we'd love to talk about, and one of them was, uh, what do you most love and admire about each other's kind of tradition? And for me, uh, it does come down to religion is alive when it continues to produce saints. Mm. And saints, small, lowercase, everyday, ordinary folk who put love and service into the lives of others. And we're all mesmerized by the Heschels and the Malcolms and the Martins and the Vincent Hardings and Fanny Lou Hamers and Rosa Parks and all of that. If you get a chance, go home and look up on YouTube this short little talk. It's not even a speech. I think it's called Martin Luther King praying over a cup of coffee. And when you talk about what do we go back to, and he's gone up north, a demonstration has gone terribly badly. He's getting criticized by the black community, and he comes home and is getting death calls. And he's like, and daddy's not there. You can't call on daddy now. And mama's not there. And he can't even go to the embrace of his wife because she's exhausted and asleep. And the four beautiful babies are asleep next door. And he's like, so I prayed over a cup of coffee. And I think he repeats 13 times or 17 times. Sometimes I feel discouraged sometimes. And each time the voice and the cadence and the desperation and the yearning and the longing and the please, Lord, do not leave me alone in this middle of the night at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee. And the talk is just as much to give himself a pep talk as it is for anybody who is there listening. Um, 
it's like I knew that somehow God had to become real to me and religion had to become real to me. I think we need those moments. And one of the goals of whether it's this 100-year series or just daily life and practice, find what that thing is for you. If it's looking into the eyes of your kid, if it's praying on a prayer carpet, if it's going for a walk in nature, if it's yoga, putting your feet in a stream, feeding someone who's hungry, find it and then do it and do it again and again and again until it becomes a habit. A closing uh, thought and a story. This gentleman who asked the question uh, inspires me to read what I brought. Uh, We all know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE and the brutal Romans. And yet, um, in the Talmud, in my tradition, it was asked, why was the temple destroyed? And they said it was because of baseless hatred that the people in my tradition could not get along. Uh, maybe all of yours do. Um, and, and for that reason, destruction resulted. And if you've ever noticed, there's no such thing as baseless love. This other Muslim or Christian or Jew is a person, and I am obligated to love and honor her or him. There's only baseless hatred. Baseless love doesn't exist. Hatred without cause will tear a society apart. The obligation to love, as we've heard tonight, the obligation to love our fellow human, on the other hand, confers a strong and caring society that is much more cohesive and strong. So my closing story, um, which fills me with warmth for this hour as we end, is uh, a legend in the Talmud that says that when the first temple was about to be destroyed by the Babylonians, bands of young priests took the keys of the temple, mounted the roof of the temple, and shouted, Master of the universe, we did a bad job guarding the temple. We are returning the keys to you. They then threw the keys up toward heaven, and the figure of a hand emerged and took the keys from them. Perhaps God still has the keys to the ancient temple, and perhaps it's time for modern religious people, whether Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or other, to ask God, can we have the keys back? (laughs) We are ready to practice our religions the way they were meant to be, the way we've heard tonight. We're ready to let go of hate, and let love prevail. Wouldn't that be a wonderful vision? And I think we felt this vision tonight. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.